Thank you very much for the warm welcome, uh, Charles, and a very good morning to you all today. Uh, <clears throat> feels a little bit weird being up here and just high above everyone. <laughs> I'm used to being down there. <laughs> so um, I do bring you greetings from uh, Grace Baptist Church, North Watford, and um, I'm here with my wife, Chichi and my two boys, uh, Macarius and Jesse. And we do hope to spend uh, a good measure of time with you at the end of the service to get to know uh, some of you. Some of you, a few of you already know. Uh, I wouldn't mention names, but uh, yeah, at the end we can, I believe, spend uh, more time getting to know each other. So I also want to thank Pastor Ryan for giving me this uh, opportunity to bring a word to you. And I want to share a word with you today from the book of Philemon. Philemon is a letter actually written by Paul to a friend in Colossae. A friend's name is Philemon. And this letter is written on behalf of a slave who happens to be Philemon's slave. So if you have your Bibles, Philemon is sandwiched between the book of Titus and the book of Hebrews. Just 25 verses, a very short letter, short personal letter to Philemon written by Paul. So my hope is not to dive straight into this text, but to give you a background as to the reason why this letter was written. And at the same time, try to address some questions that simultaneously actually emerges from the reading of this letter. But before we begin to do that, let's read together. Um, actually, let, if you follow along as I read, 25 verses and I read. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our, bro our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, the church in your house, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. Uh, full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother. Because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, 
whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. No longer as a born slave, but more than a born slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you or even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Now it's interesting uh, as you read this letter over and over and over again. As you devote your time and your mind to the reading of this letter, its apparent obscurity begins to dissipate into a heart-searching question. A question that compels a response from you. A heart-searching question that transcends the time for which it was written, 60 AD, 60 to 62 AD. And this question now has found its way into our time, owing to the divine origin of this letter. It's a question that compels a response from you, a heart-searching question. And the question is this. Is a thorough-going reconciliation an actual possibility in a fractured relationship? Is a thoroughgoing reconciliation an actual possibility in a fractured relationship amongst members of the same community of Christ, amongst members of the same local church? I'm not talking about the putting on of a good public face that hides the loss of something irretrievable. 
I'm not talking about a high flowery kind of angelic prayer that hides the lost for vengeance. Or half-hearted reconciliation. Or even restoring things back to what they were before. Almost to what they were before. Is a thorough going reconciliation an actual possibility in a fractured relationship amongst brothers and sisters of the same community of Christ? See, the answer is yes. If we search the scriptures, the answer is yes. And Philemon guarantees that the answer is yes, but only in the context of the reaffirmation of love. Only in the context of the reaffirmation of love, the kind of reaffirmation of love that will cost you your pride. The kind of reaffirmation of love that will cost me my pride. It will cost you your desire to strike back this reaffirmation of love. It will cost you your desire to vent your spleen. It will cost you the desire for retribution. It will cost you your desire to make the person who has offended you look insignificant. It will cost you your power to humiliate a brother or sister who has offended you, this reaffirmation of love. You see, if we really desire reconciliation, then we need to crucify our pride and humble ourselves because Jesus Christ has shouldered the great cost of propitiation for us so that we in turn can bear the cost of propagating this great love that has been shown to us on the cross, that has been made on display for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. We must bear, bear this love. We must be a people who model this love. It's a reaffirmation of love. And we are called to model this love on behalf of one another. The letter of Philemon compels us to do so, to model the beauty of reconciliation. So according to this letter, reconciliation is not complete if it is not motivated by the desire to elevate the dignity of the one who has offended you. The gospel-centered forgiveness protects and preserves the dignity of the one who has offended you. That's what reconciliation is. He goes after in aggressive pursuit to protect and to preserve the dignity of the one who has offended you. Why? Because a revolution of relationship has taken place through Jesus Christ who stooped so low to bear the indignity of our shame on the cross. Bearing our shame and scoffing rude 
in a place condemned, he stood. In a place condemned, he stood in order that he might promote and honor those he loves, those who were so abased and sinful, so those who were so utterly unworthy. He stepped down and down until he was made a sin offering so that you and I might be exalted to the height of heaven. Philemon is a letter that teaches us about the reaffirmation of God's love and aggressive pursuit of the well-being of Christians individually. It's a personal letter written out to Philemon. Has references to, it opens out publicly, but then closes in again personally. And is teaching us about a reaffirmation of God's love. Because in this letter, a, re a, a relationship has been fractured between Philemon, a Christian slave master, and his slave Onesimus. And Paul now is seeking to reconcile them back together. Now, I want you to understand that this is not a letter that advocates for the abolition of slavery within the first century slave institution in, in the Greek Roman world. This is not a letter that advocates for the abolition of slavery. It's completely different from the 19th century transatlantic slavery as we understand it. You see, in this Greek Roman culture, Slavery in the Greek Roman culture here is not racially defined, is not racially motivated. Conditions of a person in slavery were often better than those who were freeborn, depending on the master whom they were serving, depending on the kindness of their master. Sometimes when people are falling on hard times, they willingly enter into slavery in this culture to better their socioeconomic life. Education was encouraged, and slaves carried out important functions on behalf of their slave masters. In this culture, a slave could become a doctor. A slave could become an engineer. A slave sometimes ran or managed the businesses of their master. They make sometimes money on the side for themselves illegally. They line their own pocket in the process when given this privilege of handling their master's property. And we believe this was the case with Onesimus who was given the opportunity to serve his master. And he must have used this opportunity, abused this opportunity to make some money for himself in order to fund his unlawful departure 
from his master. A fracture in relationship had taken place. He had to leave. Things had got so bad. He unlawfully departed from his master into a distant realm where he meets with Paul. And Paul here then begins to pour his life into this man through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this man, this slave, becomes a useful Christian who was once called a useless slave. He becomes a very, very useful Christian slave. So useful it was that Paul would have been so glad to keep him back so that he could serve him. But Paul had to do the right thing. Paul had to do the right thing by sending him back to his master. But this is, there is a problem. But, but Paul is hoping that through this letter, as he sends him back, there will be no recourse to a retribution. Because the relationship has been fractured. He has stolen time from his master. He has fractured his relationship with his master. He has abused the contract that binds them together. And the natural recourse is retribution. Most especially in a culture that celebrates vengeance. If you try to do the a search, the archaeological findings of this Greek-Roman culture, you would find gruesome images, hundreds of thousands of gruesome images depicting vengeance. This culture sees forgiveness as a weakness. Forgiveness is not seen as a virtue. It's a vice. In this culture. Do I need to remind you when Jesus Christ had to carry his cross on the way to Golgotha, he had to go through the longest route. As an example to anyone who would defy this culture. Forgiveness was seen as a symbol of weakness that needed to be discarded despised and discarded. That's what forgiveness, that's how they saw forgiveness in this culture. And this is the culture Philemon belongs to. And this is why Paul's appeal to him had to be strong to compel him to receive his slave back, to compel him to welcome his slave back home. Why? Because he's now a Christian. They are now brothers in Christ. You see, it's much like our culture. We celebrate those who want to vent their spleen. We give a stage to those who want to vent their spleen. We make TV shows for those who want to give others a piece of their mind. Well, after all, in this Greek-Roman world, first century, a slave was only a piece of property to their master. That's all it is. 
It has its own dark side. They were only a piece of property, a piece of property. A slave had no legal standing of their own. A slave's testimony was not even permissible in the court of the law. So, Onesimus is in a precarious condition. And so for a runaway slave, once found, they could be severely punished or crucified as an example to others who would be thinking of doing the same thing. And Paul now knowing this precarious condition of this lowly slave, Paul now demeans himself in his address as a prisoner of Jesus Christ is also a euphemism for a bond slave. Paul demeans himself so modestly and so humbly. Nowhere else is the meekness of his temper painted in a more lively manner than in this letter as he seeks to reconcile Onesimus back to Philemon. Paul begins to identify with Onesimus' weaknesses. As he appeals for him, as he begins to build his appeal. And verse 16, which is the theme that holds this letter together, reads like this. If, I, if you allow me to read from verse 15, it says, For this perhaps is why he was parted for you from a while that you might have him back forever. Verse 16 now says, No longer as uh, you are to receive him, no longer as a bond slave, but more than a bond slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. This is the theme that holds this letter together. This strong appeal, receive him as you would receive me, as a dearly beloved brother. The question is this, what gives Paul this confidence? Upon what basis is Paul writing this appeal and asking him to receive, asking Philemon to receive his slave as a beloved brother? Upon what basis? What gives him this confidence? Considering the difficulty of the request, Considering how difficult it, must have, it would be for Philemon to receive a slave back, what gives Paul this confidence? Why? Long before the suffragist movement, long before the equalities amendment, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he made an outstanding proclamation in keeping with the achievements on the cross on our behalf. He said to Mary Magdalene in John 20, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I, am not, I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go instead to my brothers. 
and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and your God. It's a revolution of relationships. This is what gives Paul the confidence to write strongly to Philemon to receive his slave back as a brother. Because, Philemon, because Onesimus now is now a Christian, and now Paul is urging Philemon to receive Onesimus back as a beloved brother. Why? Because a revolution of relationships has taken place when Christ rose again from the dead. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go instead to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. See, prior to the invasion of sin into the human race, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, experienced complete, unqualified intimacy with God and with each other. Never ever has there ever been a perfect relationship between human beings than that which was enjoyed by Adam and Eve. But when God's vice regents, Adam and Eve, when they defied God's authority because they were dissatisfied with their creaturely limitations, when they defied his authority, the virus of sin was unleashed and it proved to be unstoppably corrosive. From that moment on, every relationship that we are a part of has become corrupted. Perfect intimacy amongst Adam and Eve and subsequently perfect relationship amongst all human beings have been lost forever. The proof, Adam not only hides from God, if you can believe it, Adam actually blames God for his present predicaments. He says, the woman you gave me, it's the woman you gave me. She gave me of the fruits. She blames God, she blames the woman. A relationship has been fractured. Sin has proved itself to be unstoppably corrosive in their relationship. And subsequently, every other relationship The relationship between Adam and Eve is corrupted. And as they hide from God, and from that moment, perfect intimacy, as they knew it was lost forever, lost to this creation, and until we can own it, we will always be frustrated because no relationship will ever live up to the standard that we desire. Even the best of relationships are affected by the corrosiveness of sin. But will there ever be a restoration? Yes, we know that when Christ returns at the consummation, when we are transformed in this lowly body, we will be like him. But Adam, rather than being useful became useless. A word we just read in our text concerning Onesimus. A word according to our text which means unprofitable. 
unemployable, unfit for purpose, a detriment, worthless, unmanageable. Through Adam's fall, we all fall, and we have all become as Onesimuses, as unmanageable slaves of sin. But when Jesus Christ stepped into our place, as the last and the true Adam, the sinless son of God, the born slave par excellence, he by his death, burial, and resurrection revolutionized everything, everywhere by making our relationships significantly different in spite of the residual effects of sin still flowing in our vein, our relationship has been made significantly different. To some degree, we can enjoy our relationships, but it's not full as we would love it to be. And how does Jesus Christ, restore dignity to our relationship. Firstly, Jesus revolutionized our relationship with God by these words. Tell these men that I am ascending to my Father, to my God and your God. To my God. Now, it's no-brainer to for us to accept that Jesus Christ shares a unique relationship with God the Father. They are co-equals. But what about your God? Tell them I am ascending to my God and your God. Your God, there is a rich and deep history in, that, in those words. There is a rich and deep history behind those words. I am ascending to your God. These words, your God, spell out God's wedding vows to the Israelites in the Exodus when God brought them out of the land of bondage. He established a covenantal relationship with them by saying to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a covenantal intimacy. A mutual belonging to each other. God is now bound to his people. And this is the way the disciples would have understood it. As Mary brought these words to their ears. Christians and God now belong to each other by virtue of the greater exodus. The death, burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. Jesus Christ continues by saying, I'm ascending to my Father. There's nothing new about that because God is the Father of Jesus Christ. We know that. But then he adds, and your Father. This is staggering. This is amazing. Because during the Old Testament era, it is nearly unheard of to hear somebody refer to God as their Father. It speaks of an intimacy of relationships that very few would even dare claim. Adam is referred to as God's son, but Adam failed. Israel is referred to God's son, but Israel constantly failed. 
Kings like King David and King Solomon are occasionally referred to as God's sons, but kings fail. But when the son par excellence, the beloved son, appeared upon the scene of human history, God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So that whomsoever embraces this son, God's sent savior, they become a full-fledged family member, an adopted son and daughter of God. This is the greatest of all gospel blessings. There is nothing greater. There is nothing better than this. To have God as your father is the greatest of all gospel blessings. Not merely to acknowledge that God is your creator, which he is. Not merely to acknowledge that the fact that God is your savior, which he is. Not merely to acknowledge the fact that God is your justifier, which he is. But that God is your father, is the greatest of all gospel blessings. Which means you have not been brought into God's household to exist as a slave or servant. Or a disciple, or better still, a friend to enjoy a measure of familiarity. You have, if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord as your, and, your, and your Savior, it means you have been given the right to become a child of God with all the privileges and all the wonderful prerogatives that accompanies this high and lofty status. It means, brothers and sisters, you are cosmic aristocracy. Nothing beats that. And this is because the resurrection changes everything. And radically, your relationship to God. Secondly, the resurrection alters your relationship to Jesus Christ. If God is your father, listen, listen to this. If God is your father and Jesus Christ is God's son, what does that tell you about your relationship to Jesus Christ? If God is your father and Jesus Christ is God's son, what does that tell you about your standing in relation to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ has become, because of the revelation of the relationship, has become your elder brother. Is that too difficult for you to swallow? Jesus Christ has become your elder brother. Because of a revolution of relationships. Not just the fact that he is your creator, which he is. Not just the fact that he is your friend, which he is. Not just the fact that he is your Lord and King, which he is, but your elder brother. Remember the very first words of Jesus Christ to Mary in verse 17. Go instead to my brothers. Prior to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, he has referred to these men as servants. He referred to them as disciples. Okay. 
It's kind of getting better. And just a few days before his death, he uses the most intimate language he has ever used before. He calls them friends, even much better. Immediately after his resurrection, for the very first time, he calls them brothers. Family members. Nothing beats this. Hebrews 2 verses 11 tells us, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Literally, they are all of one. That is why Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call a slave his brother. This is to show more forcefully how Jesus Christ is not ashamed of us. A commonality that runs so deep between Jesus and his people is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. His brothers and sisters. That's the implication. Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. And now you and I know the inherent value of the uncreated eternal son. In comparison to created sons and daughters, we know that. But we must also understand that it was Christ's desire to create a full and complete identity with those he came to save. He wanted to be one with us as much as it can possibly be for our Assurance. So, owing to all this, what does this imply in regards to our Christian belief and practice in our relationship to each other? It means, despite our ethnicity, despite our color, social status, race, educational experiences, we are bound to each other in a way that surpasses every biological relationships. In Christ, we have a blood-bought relationship, an, inti an intimacy that is far more profound than anything you will ever experience on this planet. We share the same paternity because God is our Father, we share the same bloodline that flows from our elder brother, Jesus Christ. We are a new family for a new creation brought about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if this is true for you, if this is your claim, if this is what you are holding on to dearly as a promise without, as a promise realized without any reservation, then can you not see how spurious accusations, gossips, envy, jealousy is, is not appropriate for us? It's profoundly inappropriate. half-hearted reconciliations, keeping yourself at a distance from someone, 
choosing not to exercise forgiveness is profoundly inappropriate. Why? Because it is an insult to the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ who calls us his brothers and sisters and as as a result an insult to the spirit of grace that binds us together as God's family. You see, we are family, which means we must love each other. We must forgive each other. We must submit to each other. We must protect each other and serve each other. Why? Because it preserves the heritage God has given us as God's family. Is there anyone here who is perhaps still holding on to some anger or unforgiveness towards a brother or sister? Is there anyone here still seeking retribution? You see, we have offended Jesus Christ infinitely more than anyone would ever offend us. And yet, he doesn't discard us. He still calls us his brothers and sisters. And you see, we need to model this reconciliation on behalf of one another. And that's why this letter was written to us. God has restored the glory and the dignity that was lost in Adam. God has restored it through the new Adam. The last Adam, his son, Jesus Christ. Because he now calls us his brothers. Philemon now must accept Onesimus, who was now a Christian, though a slave, as his own brother, without any recourse to retribution. Is reconciliation an actual possibility in a fractured relationship, a thoroughgoing reconciliation? The answer is yes, 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 throughout the whole Bible. Even more, yes, here in this book, in this letter of Philemon, written to Philemon, it is an actual possibility if indeed you are in Christ. This is why we have Matthew 18 as a caveat. This is why we have other scriptures where the Bible says, encourages Christians to, sing, to sit together if there is a fracture in their relationship to be reconciled to each other. Matthew 18 is not an opportunity to strike back. Matthew 18 creates an opportunity to be reconciled to brothers, sisters, members of the same family. We have a heritage to protect. We have a heritage to be jealous about. Why? Because of who we have become through the revolution of relationship. Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and calls us his brothers and sisters. It's something to be jealous of. 
It's something for us to preserve and to protect. Do you see your brothers and sisters this way? Do you see the dignity that Christ has ascribed on them, that Christ has showered on them? Do you bask yourself in that glory? This is what Paul always desired. If you read his letters through and through, he's always basking in the glory of Christians being reconciled to each other. He says in this letter, this will refresh my heart. If you can do this for me, this will refresh my heart. He's writing from prison. He's in shackles, he's in chains, and he's, he, he can feel the pain of those chains. And he's saying, listen, if you do this for me, this will refresh my heart. Why? Because this then means it's calling us to be imitators of God himself. And my prayer is that God will uh, give us greater understanding concerning who we are now. A revolution has taken place. A revolution of relationships has taken place. To everyone, everywhere. Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ. A revolution has taken place. And we have an obligation to constantly reaffirm the love that God has poured out on us on behalf of each other. We have a responsibility to model this love. We have a responsibility not to look at this love as though it was a portrait on display, but to model it for each other. And this place, any place, would be like a paradise on earth. People will flock in and say, I want to see who it is that makes these people look beautiful. I want to see it. I want to get in on it. Because that's what the gospel does. That's what it does. When we allow it to work in our hearts, when we surrender our pride, when we surrender our pride because Christ has borne the great costs of propitiation and now it is our responsibility to model this propagation of the gospel, to propagate it through our lives is costly, I know. But what a beautiful thing for us, what a, what, a, what a great thing, what a great privilege to be called brothers and sisters of the Most High God. What a great privilege. Nothing beats this. It's the greatest of all gospel blessings. Let's bow our heads for a moment as we pray. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful once again for what you have done for us and how you constantly reaffirm your love towards us. The love of your Son who stooped so low and stood in our condemnation 
that we may become sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are grateful for this, O God. And Lord, I do pray now, we know how difficult it is, Lord, to pursue the well-being of other Christians to, when we have been offended, Lord, we ask for your grace. That you give us the grace to exercise reconciliation, oh God. To know, Lord, that we have offended you more than anyone will ever dare offend us, oh God. Give us his grace, oh God, that we may gladly model your costly grace which is revealed to us, oh God, on the cross. So Lord, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to look into your word and to consider, Lord, who we are, our status, our dignity, our value in your son Jesus Christ. We are grateful, oh God. Help us to leave it out, oh God, that people may see and, and um, be drawn to your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to get out of the way. Help us to put down our pride, oh God. Help us to bear the cost of propagating this great love which you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much. Thank you.